Hello, and welcome to Effective Conversations with Yael Feiner. Each episode is a unique journey into a polarizing topic where we go beyond the facts, explore the underlying emotions, and learn something new about ourselves. Today, I'm honored to speak with Elder Bill Jones. Bill talks about mental health and addiction issues indigenous people experience. This talk might be triggering and hard to listen for some. Please be kind to yourself. Take the time to ground as much as you need. Breathe to the place in your body that get tensed. Effective conversation starts with effective listening. All my relations. This is your apologizer here, Bill Jones. I'm so happy to talk with you. It's a great honor. I wanted to talk with you for a while now. I'm researching the challenges in communication. I hear people experience at Ferry Creek, uh, in meetings, in circles, uh, at Frontline. I want to learn t- on those challenges so we can find a way to release the tension and achieve better success together in cooperation in saving the forests. Oh, yeah, that we need to do, yeah. <laughs> So, Bill, as far as I understand that since the summers, it was very chaotic and really, really tough. There are many challenges between white people and BIPOC people at the blockade. And the tension is very high and people blame each other for being racist. And it sounds like people feel not valued and not heard. And many are leaving the blockade. I heard BIPOC youths couldn't stay there any, any longer anymore. And I heard many white people left, and some some are still around, but they are struggling. Yeah, oh my, it's uh, it uh, as far as the in I let's see how will I put this? Um, you're talking about in the front line when people when whites and First Nations are up at the front line. Yes, in the front line, but also in the circles and also in meetings. It's, uh, it's since the summer, so it's for a long time now. Yeah, they're very... Uh, my feeling is that the um, First Nations who are isolated all their lives, first living on a reservation, and then they go to town... Or grow up in town in the small enclaves called um, well in Victoria they're called um, Macola housing which is uh, housing put in Victoria to uh, accommodate uh, housing problems with uh, First Nations people so they wind up just as isolated and not um, um, indoctrinated or you um, immersed in uh, non-native culture and they don't know the skills and roots to um, um, work their way through it and um, it's not the um, the it's very difficult to um, explain this because I think it needs a um, uh, extended study like maybe you are doing uh, these these We'll start from the beginning. Um, these 
kids, the First Nations children or people who go to join the movements, particularly mm-hmm. in um, Ferry Creek, in my experience, or Walbrand, where, where there was just me, actually, but in Ferry Creek, the ones who came from other places had a um, beef to bear, or, or whatever it's called, a grudge against white people. Okay, so they got there, and they um, were able to um, um, vent their frustrations on white people with the white people being a captive audience. Mm -hmm. And they um, eventually, uh, the white people get tired of that being uh, um, berated and uh, um, insulted by First Nations people. They leave. And um, the problem is that a lot of mentally ill or troubled First Nations people, these are people who are marginally uh, crazy, you know, yeah. and can't be, in, um, can't be inst- institutionalized or, you know, put in a hospital or something like that. So anyway, they find the uh, Ferry Creek, especially in my experience, they get there and they find that, oh boy, I can really take it out on them white bastards now. They can't go away and they can't hurt me. Whereas mm-hmm. in jail, they they can get the shit kicked out of them by insulting a white guy, you know. But in So it's sort of a different scenario in uh, the um, front lines, particularly in Ferry Creek. So they... Um, are with their limited communication skills, they uh, find a, uh, oh boy, now I can take it out on a whitey or even screw a white girl, and uh, I'll be have my uh, frustrations vented, ego preened, you know. So, um, so that's an awkward thing to explain. Yeah. It's awkward for a, a mentally ill person to um, communicate with people. Um, it's sort of like um, it hurts to uh, communicate. You can put your signals towards the people, you're, and then when they start uh, communicating back to you, you can't sort and um, think over their... Um, message to you and uh, you interpret it as uh, an offense or an affront so um, it's uh, rather awkward particularly describing this communication difficulty so what can you do in those kinds of situations uh, what the heck's her name uh, they, she had a nickname she, and she was very troubled up there and At first, and then she uh, a bunch of three or four of the um the leaders you know the mm-hmm. organizers um, yeah. Erica and Shauna and Charlotte and um oh I forget who all started talking to her and made a magnificent turnaround with her uh communication skills, her being a uh, actually a gifted of all things a Amazing. counselor. Amazing. It's amazing to counselor 
being mentally ill, venting on white people in a in an isolated situation where she uh, doesn't have to worry about white people uh, hurting her or affronting her because they're her captive audience. So they worked on her, I I call it, and persisted in trying to help her. Anyway, yeah, so she um, finally started responding to the um, white women's... um, Help. Sending her good, loving um, vibrations, you know, that she was seeking and wanted. Oh, boy. And um, so um, she started responding, and she um, became uh, quite a communicative and a good organizer up there. And then um, she uh, went along, and she discovered... uh, comfort with her ego and she um, got with and other First Nations people would uh, get there and she would um, have co- have conflict with them because she wanted them to uh, use her uh, communication technique and she um, got frustrated with the First Nations and then that accelerated into frustrations with Everybody and she huffed off. <laughs> oh wow! So ah. it was you know, a very uh, tender situation. That and then there's three or four others that were actually um, um, escapees or whatever you call it from a, a halfway house, as we call them. Um, there's two of them on the island apparently. One around. Um, Campbell River, you know, one around um, Lady Smith or thereabouts, a farm for women, and another up on um, Courtney or thereabouts, between Courtney and Campbell River. Well, anyway, the first one around uh, south here towards up from Qualicum or something like that is sort of a, a minimum security one. The girls can leave and... Um, what happened was one of the girls uh, left there for a weekend out and uh, wound up at Ferry Lake, and she um, discovered, oh, a captive white audience that she can give them shit and uh, <laughs> abuse oh. and uh, vengeance on them. And she uh, did, and she was evicted out of the camp, and then she wound up at the... Um, more secure farm. We have two true funny farms in Vancouver Island that I know of now from my experience in uh, Ferry Lake. So now she's back at the, uh, but in a, back at her mental care places, but with mm-hmm. uh, a more security, secure surroundings. She can't leave. So uh, she uh, broadcasts now and then, but she is now. Um, discovering her own uh, intellect and and articulate, she's starting to write it mm. and uh, post it on um, Facebook and that. So um, most of the First Nations have different graveness of their um, mental in- incapacitation or whatever it's called, you know, and so that um, 
it's actually uh, very good um, for people who are not the ones who are non-violent. They are very uh, stimulated by it and are able to interact with white people. Yes, you seems to have trust in white people. How do you came to grow trust? And how do you differentiate between a white settler uh, that you can trust and somebody that you cannot trust? And maybe this answer can help people that listen to that uh, have some, like not every, all white are the same. So try to help them to, to bring some wisdom and differentiation there. Yeah, that is a very um, a big question about that. I've had uh, an open soul, I guess you could call it. That's a huge soul that I accept people and um, let them sink into me. I like, uh, oh, I don't know, a... Uh, An experienced um, Buddhist monk or something like that mm-hmm. or uh, um, a um, counselor of sorts but I think counselors are aren't some the Western counselors are so much different from the Eastern or First Nations counselors they um, have an agenda for you mm-hmm. and I, that is uh, an odd you know well I You, vent, you send me this signal and I'll echo it back to you and influence your thought. Whereas Eastern people are sort of all accepting and saying, okay, that is what you uh, are and uh, I'm glad you so- sell it to me. So there's no real um, echoing of uh, a person's response or uh, editing of it or, or you know, uh, in any way. In response mm-hmm. so, so my own experience is the fact that it's more sublime than we think in the um, sociologic or um, what do you call in- interaction I think it's more the white people when they go up to a um, forest they are actually um, searching and looking for themselves and they do find themselves in a gentle way that we all do that my grandfather exhorted me to believe is that when you go to the forest you are a person there presenting yourself to an, the forest and grandpa said after a while you have to start letting go and not thinking in the forest and eventually the people who the non-first nations who go up there, they actually do that and they let go and let our great mother come into them. Mm-hmm. And that is uh, the change in their lives where that has been waiting for centuries, you know, from their alienation in the industri- industrial revolution. And um, that uh, is their saving grace. They... actually become first the an indigenous or original self and resensitized into their surroundings and these people who do gain that sensitivity are um, confronted with troubled first nations 
you know, they're so happy to see them. Oh, first an Indian. Oh, boy, I got a real friend. And then they discovered he's angry or she's angry and she's venting and throwing shit at you, you know. And you eventually tire of that. And so you wind up saying, oh, boy, I can't take this anymore. I ain't coming back. It's too uncomfortable. So anyway, um, I'm glad you're... Let me talk about this because it's a very complex uh, situation that the ideas, when uh, finally sorted out, is that First Nations, I hate to say this, but the facts are right in front of us, most of them don't go up there to uh, um, help to save the old growth, but to um, go up there on a protest that they think they'll be safe at, and then they'll uh, uh, actually get some rewards from Whitey, as I call it. Wow. And they, uh, and then they also discover that, oh, Whitey is the, the, the 90% of the population there are white, and they uh, are my, my own captive prisoner audience and I can give them shit and uh, yeah. bite their tongue and giggle, you know. And I think that's what, and then of course, of course the white people finally give, give up with all this baloney and just leave, you know. Yeah, it's so complex. From one hand, this, this is your territory, this is your land, and it's also empowering for indigenous people to protect their own land. And from the other end, if trauma is surfacing for them around white people, and what they're eventually doing is lashing at white people, they are damaging the effort of saving the forest. So it is, wow, so complex. Yeah, yeah, well, well it's so, sort of awkward to keep to, uh, it's an untenable situation that we don't know, even I don't know what to do about it, you know, because we have to wait until First Nations are, ready to interact and uh, that their bitterness has been quiesced or, you know, diminished, cleansed away, you know. I wanted to ask you something about tone policing. It's something I learned from speaking with people at Ferry Creek, um, that indigenous people are asking not to tone police them when they're speaking in a dirty language, because this is the way they express themselves. And I wonder what do you think about that? A very difficult situation is it's unmanageable and uh, the group just it disintegrates like it has now it's something that I'm pondering about you know how to uh, now we've got a core of First Nations people with limited communication skills anyway that actually what it amounts to is that First Nations have to be convinced that that white people have to be up there. I have to have huge numbers of white people up there. I hate to say that, because guess what? They provide the money. They provide the supplies, transportation, expertise, intellect, media, everything. And they don't realize that these great people who are up there are there to help them until my First Nations people realize, like
take even at Wet'suwet'en, they got 95% First Nations up there, which I think is not tenable. It's a piece of cake for the cops. Yeah. Because they're because attacking Ferry Lake persistently was a strategic failure for the powers that be, particularly um, oh, Teal Jones and the federal and provincial government in um, maintaining the, what we call the colonialist economy. Actually, that's what they're trying to protect. Uh, and uh, they happened... <laughs> it's... Uh, a very uh, trying uh, situation for the, because uh, on top, overlaying all this, all this stuff is the racism and the um, entrenched policies of the RCMP of uh, venting First Nations and actually murdering them, you know. Like yeah. there's three gone missing in, um, oh boy, that's another chapter in, Yes, three missing indigenous people from the Ferry Creek. Yeah, yeah, the three, four went missing, counting the, that white man, and then three First Nations. I think three women and one man in a van or something disappeared. It's a classic assassination technique that cops have been using for years. There, have you heard of, it's not very commonly known, but... The Black Bridge in Prince George is one classic example. Um, no. When uh, the cops finally get tired of this Indian uh, drunkenly raising hell in town or something like that, they simply catch him at midnight some in some winter night and toss him over the bridge and let him go down the river with the broken ice. Right. That has been going on for a oh, hundred or more since the bridge was built. And uh, it's commonly known amongst the uh, numerous uh, groups in Prince George, particularly the ones who had lived close to the bridge there, they, they say, don't go near the bridge. They'll toss you over. Oh. And then, in fact, in my uh, st- um, investigations, it turns out that Oh, boy, the cops started it, okay? They started tossing Indians over the bridge. And then the Hells Angels heard about that. So they, oh, boy, they'll, um, we got a free place to assassinate right in town here, toss them over the bridge, and we're done with our victim. And then the redneck white people discovered it. So they... Um, so, and so they started doing the same thing, and then oh. gangs of Indians started tossing each other over when they got tired. <laughs> oh my God, this is terrible. So it's a really, uh, you know, sickening and uh, uh, a place oh. that needs cleansing and the whole attitude of uh, the whole area is... Um, criminally insane yeah wow and uh, is... that 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 makes it acceptable for the whole area and so we have the missing women in action and uh, the big and the main explanation for that is racism yeah that anyway I'm, i should talk to you more i hope you're noting this all so that you i do get some sense of 
from my own self or what I feel this um, experience in Fairy Lake is starting to uh, let me understand. Let's just take a pause here, ground ourselves, observe what's going on for us right now. Maybe hug ourselves, forgive ourselves. Whatever we feel is okay. I wanted to ask you about your history. How was it for you to grow up? And I wonder if you went for a residential schools too. Oh yeah. Yeah, we were taught to be uh, put aside, taught to... Uh, stand in the background and taught to not to be obedient and uh, accepting. They put us in Indian schools. That's about three or four thousand in one record and then we keep digging up bodies. <laughs> wow. It was, yeah, it was, it was a sad and uh, horrible place, yeah. The, um, in particular, well, with the Roman Catholic Church in particular, they were very um, cruel and they recruited, um, I guess, sadistic staff to uh, oppress the children. And uh, when they died, they were trained to accept their death on the um, at the Indian residential school and they buried them as part of their... Um, Routine. <laughs> <laughs> Routine, huh? So it's a very uh, stupefying uh, behavior modification system where you wind up sub- submissive and not really uh, having any uh, idea of personhood. You were taught to deny who you are, what you are, or even think of yourself as a person. It's rather, it's very difficult to understand, uh, well, not understand, but to uh, explain to non-First Nations people uh, the um, depth and breadth of the um, oppression experience that we have had and still are um, experiencing. However, um, now times have been changing. We're now being empowered by us, mostly ourselves, and are now with lip service from the government. They're mm-hmm. saying, yes, prove yourself, but in the white man's way. Right. So so it's um, a dilemma, but it's coming along fairly uh, um, fitfully, I guess you could call it. On the other hand, um, well, that's mainly because... Uh, of women, um, women's um, women have uh, always been trying to improve their position amongst first amongst First Nations. They were classified as being under male First Nations, and uh, that they were subservient to the male First Na- Nations, and then they that they were. No, denied numerous things, property rights and inheritance rights and stuff like that. But they uh, wound up first bit by bit, small step by small step. And then another one was if a 
girl married a white person, mm-hmm. um, she would have to surrender her Indian status and become a white girl. <laughs> and also, uh, her children would not be uh, qualified for Indian status. So, yeah, then about in the 80s or something like that, 68, I think it was, um, the, the First Nations Indian girls won the right to uh, be not lose their Indian status by marrying non-Indians, mm-hmm. and also they register their children. So that was a start, and um, it has been fitfully coming along ever since. But the... Um, the oppressive techniques of the uh, federal government is still very well entrenched on most reservations away from urban uh, isolated reservations like Port Renfro. Yeah. And, it, and the, the out-of-the-way uh, reservations, you know, like the ones up in the interior. So there's 86 um, First Nations like Port Renfro in B.C. and the government has corrupted the um, governing system or the governance on it these two, um, and keep it corrupted for the political means for the uh, federal government, the provincial government, and business, particularly logging companies and oil companies, to, mining companies, to get their way on reservations. And so, well, anyway... It's far away from where I was talking about, where you asked me about... Yeah, your your experience as as, as a child. Yeah, so um, that's the sort of... It's difficult to um, establish an understanding without giving the uh, preview of the structure of the world that First Nations kids uh, grew up in, up to my generation. And um, we were isolated, we were um, alienated, we were prosecuted, we were beat up by the cops, beat up by white people, beat up by (laughs) each other. It was a very savage world that um, men left the reservations and essentially... um, Probably about half of us drank ourselves, more than half, drank ourselves to death on bigger cities, skid rows. Mm -hmm. And um, likely about, uh, mm, I would say about less than half First Nations men lived till they're 25. Usually they they would drink themselves to death before they're 25. And there was a huge attrition rate on Skid Rose of all the big cities for First Nations men mm-hmm. and women also. So that, after you left the oppressive residential school, uh, a lot of Indian women just uh, became mentally ill or depressed or mm-hmm. or anything to get away from the reality of what their position is. So it was a world of insane escapism, I guess you could call it. Yeah. And so um, they um, 
wound up, you know, doing drugs, and there was a difficult part of First Nations um, women is um, child rearing, um, and it's a sad system that sort of entrapped First Nations women into a system of, as a young adolescent girl, you have a choice. You can... Um, Give up your baby and let it become white, or uh, or you know be adopted by um, non First Nations um, parents, or let them go. They'll go into the uh, what do they call foster foster care system and things like that. So it was a it's a very uh, difficult um, and extensive. Uh, Bill, why they had to give up the baby? What did they do with the babies? No, what, what's the reason the government explained that they want to take the babies from the mother? To uh, give them a better life and to adopt them to white uh, families. And it, it, was, it was insane. It was simply a uh, system to destroy First Nations people. As a Every child born was needed to go to white family? Every child? Yeah, well, in my time, yes. As I'm hearing this part again, I still feel very triggered and emotionally overwhelmed by what Bill was saying. And I want to take a moment for everyone that listens to that right now and feel overwhelmed, maybe angry, maybe guilty, maybe overwhelmed, just to take a moment to experience what you feel in your body without adding any more details to... The story that already been told, just like experiencing that, acknowledging what you feel, acknowledging the information. And it's really hard to hear triggering stories like that, but it's also very important for us to observe what it does to us when we encounter this kind of information, this kind of things, so we can be closer to the truth. truth sometimes is really hard to hear and many of us tend to push it away so this is an opportunity not to push it away not to close the recording and just look inside what it does to us and learn from this experience together yeah well in my time yes if you go to a residential school and Uh, yes, we, in my time, up to about, oh, I think, uh, 1996, the uh, last of the residential schools shut down. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's an extensive field to understand, but I think there's been a lot of writing on First Nations experience and a lot of um, many uh, boo-hoo books put out by... Um, First Nations of how tough my life was and how I hate white people. There's lots of uh, books written on that way, but not too many. Uh, well, there's lots of, I wouldn't say, not too many yet, um, what I call um, clinically detached studies of ourselves, you know, and that's difficult to do because of our emotional component, you know. Uh, Bill, I, I'm interested in your experience personal experience how it was for you uh, so in what age you went to residential school 
Yeah. Uh, well, okay. I'll start off. Uh, it's easiest from the beginning with my life. I guess I was born in 1940. I'm 81, and um, I am from Pachinat First Nations in Port Renfrew, BC, and um, I was uh, required to attend the um, Alberni Indian Residential School. Um, but my dad kept me home until I was seven years old because he said I was too small mm -hmm. and tender to be put into a place like that. So, and then I finished high uh, school. We went, it was very chaotic for my family also because, uh, Indians were allowed to drink there and we, and, um, uh, it's difficult to explain to uh, normal people how how alcohol affected. Uh, we became uh, erratic and mean and vulgar and uh, sort of uh, angry and all them things in once at once. And the, our own uh, ethnic expression for it was we went haywire. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, we lost control of everything, and mm -hmm. uh, and insanity was uh, what it amounts to. It, it wound up alcohol as a as a primal um, scream, venting. Yeah, and um, that raised chaos with and destroyed the the remnants of our family structure. So, dad and mom would uh, get drunk, and they would fight. And they would put us in the boarding school, or uh, Indian residential school in Alberni. And then um, they would, uh, dad would, and mom would sober up and they would quit drinking. And then they'd take us back home hmm. to uh, be in the white schools. So that went on like that for about 11, nine years, I guess it was, because uh, I stayed at the Alberni Indian residential school from grade. 10, 11, and 12, but 1 to no, uh, 9, I would have to a um, an open public school in Port Renfrew called, well, Port Renfrew Elementary School, and uh, there were, it was about, oh, less than half, uh, maybe one-third of the population class was first from my village, mm -hmm. and we... Um, got to be able to um, socialize with non-fruit white kids. Right. And um, so we, um, my family were given the um, immersion to interact with white people, but most First Nations um, aren't, didn't have the experience of, of uh, as my family has, my dad built his house right next door to a Finnish fella, and we grew up with the uh, Finnish kids, so we were used to them. And that um, is a interaction skill that most First Nations aren't given mm -hmm. and denied that they can be uh, can ostracize themselves, and so um, that is uh, was quite uh, evident. In Ferry Creek, there were numerous First Nations kids got 
to Fairy Creek, they were on an adventure, and they found that, oh, they're on a spiritual search, save the trees, but and they got there, and they, of course, had their emotional, mental, emotional baggage there, and they uh, eventually uh, let their baggage loose and uh, vented on the captive white audience. How did it affect you to be around white people? Did you hate them? No, I think my family, my father and mother were balanced and um, emotionally adept people, and they were uh, accepting of uh, white people when they weren't expressing any animosity. Mm-hmm. So we uh, wound up being, from my parents, taught to not hate white people, but to um, we, we just accept them as friends and persons. Anyway, we were given the social skills in my family, and thus my uh, articulance and ease with which I, you know, inter- interacted with people in Ferry Lake. I was used to it, a lifelong relationship, you know. But those kids who went there, anyway, I finished high school in 1959. I took an airplane mechanics course a two-year course at what we call BC Vocational School in Burnaby and um, finished 1961. And then I took a criminal justice course in 68, 69, something like that. And uh, I didn't like it, so I left it. And then I took a practical nursing course. Mm -hmm. But by then, alcoholism was uh, catching up to me, and I was drinking heavily from about 1968 to about 1980, where I joined AA and have been mm-hmm. sober ever since. Right. So that's a brief uh, stampede over my first 40 years. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. What is your definition for mental health? Um, well, that's a difficult question because uh, I think most people regardless of race, we all have the uh, same, uh, what they call a normal up and down graph mm-hmm. of uh, mental health problems. And um, mental health problems with First Nations is, uh, is exacerbated by um, uh, the racism and prejudice and oppression. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, It's a vicious circle that goes round and round until the person dies, usually, or uh, about about 5% find a, a solution and accept it. So it's much similar to alcoholism, the mm. uh, First Nations experience, where you wind up with problems that you can't escape or can't let go and can't... Um, let go our emotional problems. So we wind up... Um, what? Sorry to interrupt you. What is the trauma that you see today that the kids that are in the Ferry Creek haven't been in residential school? So what kind of trauma they oh, carry today? Yeah, they are... Um, most, 
most of them have had or have shattered families. Uh, the um, family system, since its destruction by the um, residential schools, the last closing around 1996 or something like that, um, well, it destroyed the First Nations' ability to have family structure. Mm-hmm. And we were alien from uh, alien from woman. You can't you can't live with woman. Not used to it being uh, having being separated all your school life, and you have and you wound up with uh, lots of uh, um, religious installed um, inhibitions of saying you know you there's lots of immoral things you have to except that you are, you can't have a good relationship with a woman. Mm-hmm. And we were not, and we were denied the um, example of uh, of wholesome relationships with families um, that most people get because they're not torn away from their families. Right. And uh, so, so the family system was, pretty well shattered. It still is and likely will be for some considerable a few more generations, I think. There's a lot of work to do. Um, and uh, how to address these problems is a, a huge social problem that has been politically denied ever since um, I guess women's lib. Yeah, because about about the same time around 1960, my mother was experiencing women's libanet, but and uh, asserting her right as a person, and, and then Indian women were fighting for their rights as to become persons and, uh, and be recognized as as human beings, and um, so that. Work has been going on ever since, but it's uh, pretty sloppy because um, the government entrenches chaos in small reservations and uh, establishes political elites that um, the government backs and entrenches into the social structure, life structure on most small reservations. So that way, uh, the government has an unflinching grip on what happens on reservations and how that reservation deals with um, business and whatnot, like Port Renfrew, where yeah. our chief, Jeff, Jeff Jones, is virtually a puppet of uh, Teal Jones and uh, the provincial government. Actually, um, Oh boy, it's kind of messier than that because uh, the uh, current government uh, has had a corrupt political party uh, win the, the majority, the NDP. They're half controlled by union, and uh, or more than three quarters controlled by union union funds usually, and um, the unions back their candidate. Mm-hmm. And their candidate has to be uh, quietly uh, in the closet pro law 
pro-logging or pro-industry. So they um, installed and uh, worked at this corrupt system to hoodwink the non-union, non-union, the people who weren't in unions um, were uh, hoodwinked by the union saying that, oh, we're for you, we're going to save the forest and that, and then they turned around and like the NDP did. Right. And so, uh, so now we have a totally corrupt uh, government that so much uh, that is pretty well controlled by business, like the ND, ND well, our, our NDP is also, uh, of course, the liberal government's a coalition of um, um, a whole hodgepodge of mess of, uh, oh, I guess liberal and conservative and right-wing uh, people. They got a whole gang of <laughs> so, Were you offered to be in the council for Pachidat? Pardon? Were you offered to be part of the council in Pachidat when the industry came to you? Well, I've, I've always had a disdain for politics, I have to admit. So they didn't ask you to join them? No, I never get, get involved politically. I was too ostracized anyway because I had the uh, terrible habit of speaking the truth. Thank you so much for listening to Bill Jones. In the very quick series, there are more perspectives worth explore to better understand and reflect our own parts in the divide. Please listen also to Waya's episode number 22. The act of intentionally avoiding somebody who has a different perspective, belief, cultural background, ideology, or skin color, I would say that is an act of racism. And that is one of the ways that I was actively contributing to racist tendencies within our society. Tiny glimpse from the conversation with Nas, number 16. Having the notion that you're just there to protect the old growth or you're just there to protect the waterways, there is no land defense without indigenous roots because us as indigenous people are protecting the land in ways that we have been doing for tens of thousands of years. Thank you for listening to the Effective Conversations podcast. Please reach out to talk about how we can help you and your organization transform conflict into cooperation. Don't forget to share the podcast to support others in healing their hearts, the divide, and our planet.